Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice, with your host, Marina. Hello, and welcome back to Vice and Easy. Thank you so much again for tuning in and for listening as we reach the end of season two. Yeah, so we have one more episode after this. This is the penultimate episode of season two. And this week we are breaking down Trust Fund Pirates. Now I'm going to read you the IMDb synopsis and I'm going to point out why it's wrong. A Bolivian cruise ship is attacked by pirates, leading Crockett and Tubbs to enlist the help of a renegade pilot in the contraband business to solve the case. Once we see this boat, it's clearly Colombian and it says Cartagena on the back. So I'm going to ignore that. I'm not really one to submit corrections or that kind of stuff online. Like, I don't like to leave comments or anything, but that I I might fix because it's not a huge detail, but it's enough of a detail that it kind of bugs me. Now, let's open with Trust Fund Pirates. Now, pirates. We have two different depictions of pirates in this episode. We open with a DJ, with Noogie, with a beautiful blonde lady just working out all day in her swimsuit. And so on this boat, we see what turns out to be a DJ, a pirate radio DJ. He has an eye patch, so we all know that he's a pirate, very much playing into this. And then as he's kind of chatting up his lady, it's time to start his show. And we see Tubbs fiddling with the receiver of his super cool dual cassette radio boombox at the precinct. But let's listen in. On this guy's show. It's not as scandalous as you would think. Three, two, one. Yo, ho, ho, Miami. It's the Pirate of the Airways, baby. It's your old friend, Captain Hook, back for another radio raid on your senses. I'm going to plunder you with bootleg boogie babies from somewhere out here on the wild blue Atlantic O. And all you FCC legal beagles out there, catch me if you can. I'm just going to interject bootleg pirate radio and they're playing Randy Newman, Oscar winner, I believe possibly also Grammy winner, Randy Newman. Not exactly what I would consider bootleg. So that is very funny. I'm also, this is also coming from a place of disdain because I hate, I love LA and I don't know why that has become the unofficial anthem for the Dodgers. But this basically, like, any time L.A. is on the global or national stage, they play that song. And just like, I... I, Maybe we'll just do better. You know, I've been here for nine years. Maybe... (laughs) You know what? If I don't agree with the song, maybe I should just get out. But yeah, I just do not have love in my heart for Randy Newman. So that's why I kind of rolled my eyes at this bootleg. So while he's transmitting, while he's doing his show from the ocean, we see another boat with two lovely ladies, also in bikinis, just chilling. They don't even say a word. They just chill. And these two guys chatting them up, saying that once they get the money, they'll be able to buy them whatever they want. They're going to start with the drink first, and then they're going to have some champagne. Or sorry, they're going to have a Bloody Mary first, and then some champagne. Then they notice this big customs boat coming towards them. And they get really nervous because they think it's the police. So we see them run away from the deck. And sadly, that attempt is futile because this customs boat does not seem to be run by immigration or customs agents because there is a Gatting gun 
or a it's not a machine gun. It's like a Gatling gun. I'm no. I'm, this is terminology from Red Dead Redemption, and they are going ham shooting the blank out of this ship. Then let's meet the other pirates of this episode. Ahoy, ladies! Permission aboard! <laughs> now, these pirates look young, like super young. So obviously that's not their boat. And after they greet these dead bodies so callously, they run around the salon and in the cabin, opening cabinets, opening doors, trying to find, surprise, surprise, cocaine. The young one, quote unquote, so the actor who actually played the blonde kid was 27, 28 at the time of filming, but you know, he's supposed to be, look, look he's supposed to be, you know, like a youngish kid. He points up to the ceiling and you can kind of see a little bit of distortion in the ceiling. And naturally that's where they find the keys of coke. After the intro, we see a gentleman on a very snazzy looking seaplane jet pull up to the boat that has been shot to pieces so he knows that something is going on. Gets on the boat, kind of starts looking around. He has a very interesting outfit. He has, he has zippers everywhere and obviously he's wearing like a long black, probably water repellent outfit, but I like all the zippers. It's very goth. And you might not recognize him because you'll recognize him 20 years from now because this is Gary Cole. Um, I know him best as Harvey, Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. <laughs> that is my, was my favorite show when I was, I want to say maybe in like grade 11, grade 10. And he was also in Office Space. He's also Ricky Bobby's dad in Talladega Nights. He has been everywhere. So I was like, oh, he's so baby-faced. He looks so different. He actually has become more handsome as he has gotten older. So good for him. He has definitely aged like fine wine. Now, so as he's on this ship, on this boat, with dead bodies and carnage surrounding him looking for this cocaine, this is what the DJ is playing. Wings, baby. They're the only ones you got. I'm gonna spin your yard. I'm gonna play you a song. I'm gonna do it short. I'm gonna do it long, baby. That's because I'm non-stop and I'm double clutching today. Let's shove off with a nice little tune, something to shake your booty. I'm going to hypothesize that the songs were not decided while the script was written that Richard Benzin, who's the DJ, did not know what song was coming up because this is not a song you would shake your booty to. <laughs> this is Heaven by Simply Red. I had to look this up because I was like, uh... I was expecting a dance number. I was expecting something a little funkier. But it's funny because, yeah, again, he's out in the ocean. He knows this pilot. So he's shouting him out. And I don't know if he just didn't see the insane carnage. I don't know what the connection is or why Heaven by Simply Red is a song you would shake your booty to. But I will digress. 
Let's get back to the episode. So our pilot, Gary Cole, or Jackson, let's refer to him as Jackson for the rest of the episode. Uh, again, looking around for the coke. He's there to pick it up. It's not there. He notices the slash ceilings. Everybody's dead. So something's rather amiss. He decides to steal the sonar equipment up in the boat as well and leaves off with it as we end the scene. Then we are in the precinct, but we're in a place of the precinct that we've never been before. We are in the dark room. Yes, the dark room. Again, if you are on the younger side, a dark room is where you would develop photographs. And if you were a big photographer, you could have one in your house. You could kind of just basically transform a room to have like soft red tinted lighting. Uh, these were really popular back in the 80s and 90s. I never had my own dark room, obviously, but this um, even just having photos develop. Like if you try to get photos developed now, if you buy uh, a disposable camera, it's kind of a pain in the ass. And I remember... I went to go pick up a disposable camera from my going away party when I left Toronto. This was not even that long ago. The company now, Blacks, I believe, has gone bankrupt and they're no longer. But I remember they're like, yeah, you can pick it up in two weeks. I was like, two weeks? It used to be 24 hours. They're like, oh, we have to send it to this facility, get it sent back. And I'm like, okay, I, I kind of get that. Like, But I'm like, you're a camera and photography store. Don't you have a dark room in there you've been in the mall for 20 years but yeah it always just blew my mind that how much it's fallen off and like i get it so i i, I do appreciate that film film photography is really coming back and like we're putting this in style so maybe dark rooms will also have a resurgence in popularity so i'm looking forward to that so what are they developing in the dark room they are developing a picture of this stolen customs boat because clearly those are not customs guard that are <laughs> shooting up boats and stealing cocaine how could they steal a boat of that size with a gatting gun and with all the ammo well i guess you could buy the ammo but still it's no easy feat and then once they go back into the lit hallway, Castillo kind of gives them a rundown. He believes that it's pirates, that there have been pirates off the coast before. And then they're kind of, again, like posturing, well, what's going on? Is someone stealing the drugs after or is someone like acting as the middleman or is someone actively going after these boats, killing these people and stealing the drugs as kind of a way to keep their hands clean of dealing but then you're also becoming culpable of murder so who knows what's going on and Castillo suggests they check in with Zito and Switek who have a sting operation up in Broward and might have a little bit more info as to what's going on since remember we're trying to tag that stolen sonar equipment in this next clip Hey, Junior, what it is, man? You got the stuff? Hey, it's a frog's butt water tight. What? Hey, check it out, man. This is the latest in sonar gear, man. You can find a Titanic with this stuff, man. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that voice sound familiar? Because it's Tommy Chong uh, cracking us up as always. And then he's kind of, you know, laying it on thick for this potential buyer that the sonar equipment barely used came from some guy's grandmother's boat. Then the buyer kind of notices all the scratches and scuffs on it and kind of, you know, jokes about a shark attack. Like, clearly this is not just from a grandma's boat. But so now that Crockett and Tubbs see the footage, they know what this guy looks like. They have a feeling where they might be able to find him. So they go kind of like a scrapyard and it's what I believe is an airstream. Now, as soon as they park, they hear a gunshot and they obviously like get up and it turns out it's Tommy Chong's wife 
not real life wife in the episode shooting rats and then she puts another sticker of the rat on the side of what I think is an Airstream it's however like a very nice trailer and then as they ask a little bit more about what's going on Tommy comes out he obviously doesn't really like uh, Crockett and Tubbs or shall I say Cooper and Burnett on his turf but you know again he kind of just seems very much like he's real life just kind of like a friendly stoner and basically kind of tells them what's going on that basically the pilot made the deal and then when he went to go get the dope everything was gone so he made the deal to buy some of the equipment from him as a way to kind of recoup his losses then him Crockett his wife and Tubbs get into a very interesting altercation in this next one so well, it, it belonged to us. Maybe you should leave now. Maybe not. I will shoot him. Shoot him. Now, that scene is hilarious to me because you can see in the gallery when Tubbs pulls the gun on the wife who's pulled the gun on Crockett. And then Tubbs just kind of like nonchalantly agrees with her and says, shoot him kind of taunting her you could see Crockett's eyebrows raise like a little suspiciously like am I in danger here am I not and then obviously Tommy Chong being Tommy Chong even though it's not his character's name I totally forgot Dumbo Jumbo Jumbo totally comes down cools everybody off luckily everybody leaves unscathed except for as you can see by the side of the trailer the rats and so after our visit with Tommy Chong we go back to the pirate boat where surprise surprise Nogi is being annoying to a woman in this next club. No way. You know, I'm not allowed to have company captain's orders. You know, if that boat was purple, I'd say it's Prince and his bodyguard. But the muscle looks a little light and I got to go below deck. So you hear things up here. This is funny because this is when Crockett and Tubbs are pulling up as Burnett and Cooper. And this is the same girl who was working out also in a bathing suit earlier on in the episode on the rowing machine. Now she's on the stationary bike. Again, a bathing suit. Again, looking like a million dollars. Like her body is slamming. But it's funny. Keep an eye because once Crockett, sorry, once Cooper and Burnett come on board, I want you to keep an eye on the direction that she's pedaling. So obviously, you know, camera technology being a little bit different in the 1980s, I thought that was a little bit funny. And so Crockett and Tubbs come on board. So again, they were able to get the name or who might be involved or get to know a little bit more information about the pilot through the DJ. Now, when Burnett and Cooper, wink, wink, come aboard, they're very surprised to see that Nogi is alive and well. And they want a little bit of information from the DJ. And the DJ, naturally, pretty interesting in this next clip. We were having a fun little chat with your old buddy Jumbo. Should I be curious about why? Concerning certain personal property that was fenced by a pilot, you know? And, uh, you want to meet? I don't think so. Come on, man. We just want him to do a job for us. We don't want to kill him. So don't worry about it. Hmm. Okay. Well, as they go from there, Crockett and Tubbs decide to pay a visit to Jimmy's hangar. Surprise, surprise. This is where they encounter Jackson, who currently at the time as they open the door is playing with an RC helicopter while the sun is setting beautifully. There are a lot of great sunsets in this episode. I will give them credit for that. Now, this is the baby-faced Gary Cole I was talking about. You can get a little bit better look at his face in this scene. Now, this, again, I will have to explain for the younger kids, but this is basically how Jackson is familiar with Crockett and Tubbs. 
Hey, you do? What's that? Save it's Cooper and Burnett, the bad humor men. Our reputation precedes us. Hey, bad news travels fast. Controlled substances, Columbia, Jimmy the pilot, ring a bell? He told me all about you guys. Now, good humor is an American, was or is, I'm not sure, I have not seen in quite a while. I will actually keep an eye out for it. An American ice cream brand. So the ice cream men were known as good humor men. So bad humor men is kind of like a fun little pun on that. So it kind of makes sense when you're doing a little bit of research in this episode like I was. Uh, this was kind of supposed to be a sequel to Smuggler's Blues. Glenn Fry was unable to revive his role. That's why it kind of is able to feed off of his quote-unquote friend Jackson. But I love me some Gary Cole, so let's get into it. Ah, now this is funny. So Jimmy, as we remember, Glenn Fry's character in Smuggler's Blues, is apparently on the straight and narrow now. That is his excuse for not being present in this episode. Now let's go back to visit Jumbo. Tommy Chong, Jumbo, is making a deal with, quote, youths. <laughs> They're basically the kids that we saw in the first scene who ambushed the boat and stole the cocaine. So we are a little uneasy as we go into this scene. But first, let's just say Jumbo knows how to do business. Turn off your lights, man! What do you think this is, a spy movie? (laughs) Now these kids keep posturing, saying that they're safe, they know what they're doing. Well, we know what they're capable of. So as Jumbo and his lady are walking with the guys to make this deal, there is one of the shadowy pirates kind of hiding in the back. Luckily, the wife is able to catch him, pull a gun on him, and is able to warn Jumbo before anything else goes awry. They end up shooting the bag of money, turns out to be fake, and Jumbo and his wife end up running away. And that's the last we see of Jumbo. Now let's do a complete 180 and go to a wildly designed bar called Raoul's with weird abstract faces on either side. Raoul's spelled out in neon, diagonally on top of, you guessed it, glass blocks, with pillars on either side, more glass blocks, and more pillars on the side. This is exactly up my alley. Inside, the interior is not as amazing. We don't really get to see the full scope of the bar, but we do get to see Jackson Crockett again with a proper drink in his hand, drinking a beer, it appears to be. And Tubbs drinking what looks to be like orange juice. And they're talking at the bar, talking a little bit about business. And Jackson is pretty adamant that he doesn't want to get involved. However, Cooper and Burnett are pretty persuasive in this next clip. And you two guys ain't anybody's rabbit's foot either. Well, look, all we want is an intro. You to who? Pirates. Ah, now, did the singer singing that song sound familiar? Because the song in the background at the bar was La Marada by our own Philip Michael Thomas. And now after jamming out to his own song at the club, Burnett and Cooper follow Jackson to his hangar, or to Jimmy's hangar. And they keep pressing him that they want to meet the pirates who've been attacking. And they want to set up a deal for weapons. They mention stolen MAC-10s from, I believe, an army manufacturer, army supply. Sorry, I just have army supply question mark. I'm like, that's not the proper term. 
up and from Fort Lauderdale, and they're offering $5 million before delivery and then $10 million on delivery for this deal. Sounds pretty good. Now, just as they're kind of getting into the heat of it, his girlfriend comes in to complain that he didn't take her to the Arclight as promised. Now, if you're an Angelino, you got excited when you heard Arclight. Arclight used to be a chain of movie theaters, apparently owned by Scientologists. But at the end of the day, this was pre-Alamo Drafthouse so that you they had ushers to make sure that people weren't talking and texting. You could see really cool movies. You get all these points. It was like Film Lover's Paradise used to have really cool matinees. I saw The Godfather in the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. Like... I lived so close. It was like a five-mile drive away from the Hollywood location when I first lived in Los Angeles, and I went there like every week. Uh, but sadly, it did not survive COVID-19. So that hurt a little bit when I heard Arc Light. But it's, again, this very cheesy club with a wild decor. I don't want to say it's a club. It's more like a bar because they do have arcade games. Also, the outside of this is wild. It doesn't even look like a bar. It just looks like wild Christmas decorations you can see I put in the gallery and I was able to get a shot of it kind of looks like when you have astigmatism where the lights kind of spike in different directions so I was able to get the car lights and able to get the street lights and then the lights in the on the building itself so it's quite a good picture but a little bit harsh on the eyes and so she's actually playing Super Mario Brothers and she actually is playing like I actually looked at the footage. It's not just, you know, like a welcome or a high score like she's actually playing. And Crockett cannot help but yawn as she goes on and on about how Jackson's the coolest boyfriend ever, how her dad doesn't like him, but her dad's so boring. And then there's a game that he's leaning on behind called Trivia Wiz, which I'm like, I would love to play that game because I think I would do pretty well. Now, after she keeps talking on and on and on, they go to sit down. The table is not even that wildly decorated. It's what's behind them. You have glass blocks illuminated by pink neon lights. Then you have these two paintings. Then you have her pull out a cigarette, a Marlboro Red, a Marlboro Red, <laughs> light the cigarette, take one drag, and then Tubbs just takes it out of her hand and butts it out. And she never mentions it or never complains or never says anything. And I thought that was a little bit interesting. I'm like, I'd be a little peeved if someone just stopped up my cigarette. But again, this was back when cigarettes costed $1.50 a pack. So maybe it was just nothing to her. And as if you're not surprised, she is a rich girl. And so while she's sitting down with Crockett and Tubbs, she's going on about her trust fund that she's going to inherit when she's 22, which means she's maybe 20, 21. Jackson looks quite a bit older. <laughs> and then she kind of goes on that Jackson doesn't care about her trust fund, that he'd love her anyway, that they're engaged, blah, blah, blah. And then repeats all these wild stories of his past that he was working with the Contras in Argentina, wrong country, and Asks if that's how she knows, as that's how they know Jackson. And the tall tales continue on from there in this next clip. Before, after he led the expeditions through Africa. After, oh, so were you part of the group that fought with the Contras in Argentina? Right. Crockett is dying of laughter. You could just see, like, he just has his hand in front of his mouth, making a little fist so he can't laugh. Like, it is just too funny. And Tubbs is laughing, too. And again, like, this girl seems harmless. 
seems harmless. Now, at the same time, Jackson has work to do. He is going to what I... I never looked this up, and I talked about this last time. Um, Like a smack house? Like a junkie house? I'm so, <laughs> sorry to anyone. Um, where A house where you're going and do heroin? I need to look this up. I used to know what it was called. Um, he goes to this very interestingly decorated house with a vat on fire, a barrel on fire, some candles lit, a guy manning and selling needles and junk, what have you. Then it actually is like very coolly decorated with these little tea-like candles on the edge. And so basically there's two floors and the second floor there is a arch archway that doesn't have a gate or doesn't have a fence. So maybe it used to be there, something happened. Just keep this in mind as we continue on with the episode. So Jackson goes over to talk to this beautiful woman who looks meticulously made up in this beautiful blue dress, but just looks really greasy. So basically, I guess this is how they're supposed to depict her into being a heroin addict, is that she just has Vaseline all over her face. (laughs) And turns out they know each other from old times. She might have some information on who the pirates are. He asks her what happened, and she basically goes on that, you know her life is futile and she doesn't feel like there's much reason for existing. It is kind of quite sad because, again, this looks like a very pretty, young, capable woman. And we don't obviously get much into her backstory. He wants a little bit more information about the pirates that she knows. And it's at that time he gets recognized by two gentlemen. He tries to charm his way out of it, but they know him. These are the guys that know the two men that were hit on the Colombian boat. Lalo, que pasa, man? Don't que pasa me. <laughs> I just love like what like a straight lace response. Like, don't que pasa me. Basically, they want a little bit more information. They are blaming him for the hit on the brother's boat. And he kind of tries to say like, hey, this wasn't me. This was the pirates. The pirates are the people that obviously they could overhear the conversation he was having with Laura. He was trying to find more information about the pirates. Now, a big kind of scuffle ensues because those baby face pirates beat up the guys who are friends or who are brothers of the gentleman hit on the Colombian boat. Now, a familiar face. This is Jackson's fiance's brother. And he's very surprised to see him here. And even more so when the brother says, hey, I've heard you've been looking for us. Basically saying that he and his friends are the pirates. And there's a lot of reasons that Jackson can't comprehend this, but this is obviously the big one. This must be record bored. You were born with all the money you'll ever need. Trust fund babies just want to have fun. Now I am going to play That Smell, which was the song that we heard as we went into this heroin house, smack house, junkie house. I will find the proper term for it, I swear. Uh, Because I am not going to play the super white supremacist speech and the reasoning basically that the brother gives as to why he's doing this. He also compares himself to Sir Francis Drake, saying that not all pirates are bad. Jackson's appalled. And when I learned up, sir, looked up Sir Francis Drake, no colonizers are inherently good people. Like, we are learning this now. Like, I remember when I was a kid 
Columbus Day, you know, was a big deal, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, ah, as we find out a little bit more, the genocide, the rape and the pillaging that happened, it's kind of hard to champion these men. So maybe it's just the lack of self-awareness on the young brother. But anyway, without further ado, instead of that, here's that smell. Just one more fix, Now we're going to completely transition and go to a super wild club bar. Again, I took pictures of all the outfits. Um, a woman with a very unfortunate perm in a satin baby blue shirt. We got a white halter on a date with a guy with a very bright, want to say kind of like maroon red satin shirt. And then we have crocodile tubs with tubs taking a bite out of his cherry in what I assume is a ginger ale. Crockett drinking a beer. The one thing I did notice is that all the bottles have plastic pour spouts. And I don't really know the science behind it, but the good bars I've worked at have used metal pour spouts. And the less clean, kind of dingier places have used plastic pour spouts. So just something to keep in mind. But again, we're not really at this bar for high quality cocktails. We are here for some tunes. And we are here for a very, very, very meta line in Miami Vice in 1986. Hey, you guys got a favorite TV soundtrack you wanna hear? It's all music is these days. What about Gilbert and Sullivan? They had some groovy little pirate tune. <laughs> I love it. Hey man, Miami Vice is number one new show. Oh, any chance I can use that, just not as the outro, will forever make me happy. So, uh, Cooper and Burnett, Crockett and Tubbs, they want to know why they're here. Jackson, knowing what's really going on, wants to call the whole thing off. And he warns them that the pirate's out, out of control. Burnett and Cooper, Crockett and Tubbs, don't really heed his advice. And they still want the deal to go through. And so the next day, they go to the hangar to talk with Jackson, who is sleeping upright in a hollowed cabin that is wildly decorated with neon with like a banana plushie and he seems like he's just like sleeping upright like he's just sitting upright and sleeping so poor guy let's uh if only go fund me's existed at this time we could get him a bed he pops him his head out of the little uh <laughs> the little doorway to see crockett and tubs and they want to meet the pirates these kids know how to make an entrance as they slide down the ropes <laughs> guns out and they're here to make a deal, and Croc and Tubbs, they want a boat that's fast, untraceable, and unsinkable. As the deal goes on, you can kind of see how unstable and how dangerous these utes, these pirate utes, really are. You get the 60 when we shove off, Butch. Are these guys okay? Hey, I just made the intros. I'm out of it. Sounds like a big no to me. Stato! I trust him! That's a little better. Okay, here's the plan. Day after tomorrow, you meet Jackson here with the guns and the 60 grand. He'll fly to us and the boat. We'll send you a check. That's funny. Very funny. Jackson 
is still in the middle with the 60. End of discussion. Oh man, Jackson is exactly in the place he did not want to be. He did not want to be the middleman. He just wanted to make the introduction. And now he is screwed. And possibly so are Crockett and Tubbs. So this could all be pretty bad. And they confirm what we're all thinking as Cooper and Burnett leave and the pirates brag that they're going to kill them and rip them off. So Jackson and his fiancée are having lunch on her very deluxe patio, very much a step up from a hollowed out plane. And he's talking about Cooper and Burnett and she's just very much preoccupied about finding a wedding dress because their wedding is not too far along in the future. She asks him what's going on and he can't say that the bad dudes are her, is her brother. And she just totally dismisses it. She's like, what is it? I did not make a clip of this, but basically she's saying that daddy says the people get what they deserve. So maybe Cooper and Burnett deserve what they're going to get. And so you can tell that he, Jackson's dealing with like a lot of internal conflict and he feels really guilty, but he is in so far that he's risking being killed by his fiance's brother. And he doesn't know what is the real deal with Cooper and Burnett. Now, Castillo also does not like the idea of them getting flown up into the air and going out to make this deal because their backup is going to end as soon as they're in the air. So, and because they can't properly provide that security, Castillo's really uncomfortable with it. But however, next scene, the deal is going through. We see the back of the truck open. We see Crockett and Tubbs take out the crates. And we see the fiance has joined Jackson. She's seems to be very curious. She's in like a very cute blue dress. She's definitely playing the part of maybe want to say like a ditzy blonde. And I say playing the part because as Jackson claims that he's going to get out of this, he doesn't want to be involved. He's scared it's a ripoff. He implores them not to go. The girlfriend pulls a gun on Crockett as he's putting his foot up and securing that ankle strap for his gun or that holster for his gun. And Crockett is super bewildered. This is not what he expected at all. Jackson is surprised. Tubbs is surprised. Basically, they take Crockett and Tubbs' guns. Jackson follows her orders. She tells him, take the guns, take the guns. And he does it. And now Crockett and Tubbs, as Cooper and Burnett, are really in deep water. My brother told me you'd flake out. Maybe what you doing? Taking up the slack. Get in the plane. Boy, do I feel dumb. Manny. Get in the plane. Oh, man, I did not see that coming. I hadn't seen this episode in quite a while. I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that's the twist I did not see coming. Jackson's also super surprised. I don't know if you could hear in the clip, but, like, he's very bewildered as to what's going on. He had no idea that she was working with her brother. And now Crockett and Tubbs have no backup, and they have no guns, and they're being forced at gunpoint to make this deal. Again, Crockett and Tubbs, they're resourceful as ever, but this is not in a place that you want to be. And then at a very inopportune time, or a very kismet 
esque time. The radio DJ is waxing poetic about how much he loves his boat because he's afraid of flying. <laughs> as Crockett and Tubbs, as Cooper and Burnett are possibly flying to their death. Well, as the plane lands, they land in a very fancy house. They land on the water and they pull up to this like little island estate that is gorgeous. Jackson luckily grabs his gun as they go to make the deal. Now, the main pirate and his sister waste no time fighting in this clip. I'm all the way out here for you. You should have smoked them at the airport. You're the one who's so hot to kill them. Hey, Captain, if you're looking for a volunteer. You're making a big mistake, pal. You made the mistake. Haha, but when they open up the crates, the crates are filled with smoke. I'm not sure if it's tear gas, but basically a huge brawl ensues. We got a great gif of Crockett grabbing a guy and then rolling backwards and kind of like a half somersault and just throwing him in the water. And there's kind of like a continuity error where he tries to grab the gun. He doesn't. But then in the next scene, he's hiding behind the bar and does have one of the MAC-10s. Um, and right as the fiance is about to shoot Tubbs, Jackson grabs her, holds on and makes sure that the gun is pointed up. Luckily, Tubbs and Jackson are able to wrestle the gun from her. Jackson not only saves Tubbs, but he unfortunately also has to kill his fiance, or in this case, hopefully ex-fiance's brother. And the gun he used, it like really took me by surprise. I was like, whoa, is that a flare gun? It turns out it's a signal gun. And you kind of see this like big pillow of smoke he dies. The trust fund baby pirate dies um, face down in the pool. And then not to make light of it, but it actually is very funny as the radio DJ does what's kind of like the farewell to this episode, basically talking about how much he loves the city. He's talking about like the pools and the water as this body is face down. So it's very funny. You'll hear it. I'll play it for you at the end of the episode. Ahoy, mate! It's Captain Hook. That's right, Captain Hook. The very treasure you've been looking for. I'm man in the poop deck. Find broadsides and flip sides and bootleg B flat. I bet you're lying around the pool, soaking up that gorgeous southern Florida sunshine. Makes you glad just to be alive, doesn't it, baby? All right. Makes you glad to be alive as he's faced out of the pool. And then as we kind of wrap this episode up, Jackson is a little bit more receptive to witness protection because, you know, he did save the lives of two cops. He didn't realize they were cops. And now it kind of all makes sense. First, he kind of brushed off the idea. But then later on, he thinks about a like new name, new identity, new start. It really sounds good to him. And then so we end the episode with the DJ saying farewell to Miami unknowingly. And then, of course, Randy Newman's Miami, which I've heard enough of in this episode. I've heard enough Randy Newman for a lifetime, personally. And the episode ends on a beautiful still frame, freeze frame, of another gorgeous sunset in Miami. And that's the episode. Let's break it down and let's start with some of these famous faces and some of these familiar faces from this episode. So I've already said nothing but glowing things about Gary Cole and my love for him as Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. Please go check it out if you have not. Um, I believe it was on Adult Swim. We had it on the detour on Teletoon. And of course, I have it on DVD. 
Uh, so that, of course, he's going to steal my heart with that one. But then again, we also have Tommy Chong. And it's funny that, like, different generations know him for different things. Either you know him from Cheech and Chong or you know him from that 70s show as Leo. And again, kind of like a small vice world. Cheech and Chong, a.k.a. Cheech Marin, would co-star with Don Johnson and Nash Bridges. Now... Richard Beltzer, he was the DJ. He was actually the warm-up guy for Saturday Night Live back in the 70s, and he did host the National Lampoon Radio Hour with other Saturday Night Love, uh, Saturday Night Live alumni, which was super cool. He had a decent career in radio, and he was also most well-known for being Detective Munch on Homicide Life on the Street and then carrying that over into Law & Order, Law & Order SVU, and The X-Files. He... Uh, more kind of in line with his radio side gigs and his co-hosting and his guest hosting on radio. Uh, He has retired and has written a lot of books about conspiracy theories. He currently lives in the south of France, I believe. Then, the fiancé, whose name I totally forget, the, the blonde girl in the blue dress, she didn't have a lot of credits on IMDb. And then when I kind of looked at her name, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Nicole Fossey, a.k.a. Bob Fossey's daughter. Nepo babies, we love them. And then Perry Long, who was her brother, also forgot his name, the trust fund pirate. He was 27 years old when this filmed. Again, because they hadn't quite, she had not come into her trust fund. Maybe he had, so maybe he was, what, 23, 24? Still looked quite young, so I thought that was funny that he was supposed to be like a trust fund kid and he's 27. But again, if you know real life trust fund kids, they uh, don't really age out of it that well. So, yeah, some big guest stars in this episode. And like some of the views have said, like, I expected a little bit more with the guest stars. What I did like is I liked how the DJ would go on different tangents and rants and they'd kind of play into the story. I do think that the radio host, the script did not have the songs licensed that they ended up using. Because, again, like I said, like it thematically did not work when he's like, shake your booty too. And it was like a very low energy, low BPM song. So I learned this, that Delilah and other of those nationally syndicated shows, we also, what was the one I had that my dad really liked? Lovers and Other Strangers? I don't know if that was solely Canadian because I want to say it was hosted by John Tesh. So maybe it wasn't. But yeah, we had that on CHFI growing up. But those kind of shows where someone will call in and dedicate a specific song. When you don't hear someone specifically request a song by title, they're like, oh, you know, my husband's in jail or my husband's in the army. and I want to dedicate this song to him because I miss him or I want him to know that I love him. But they don't specify a title. They change that out depending on different markets. So if let's say if. Delilah's on um, Hot AC, which means Hot Adult Contemporary. The songs are going to be different than if she's being broadcast on an oldie station. And like, that was wild to me. I was like, oh, it just like broke my entire heart. I never would have considered that. (laughs) But again, you know, that does make a lot of sense. And you want to play into the market that will get you the most ad ad revenue. So speaking of radio, let's break down the music of this episode. Uh, My least favorite, Miami by Randy Newman, no surprise. Again, Heaven by Simply Red. Meh. Still in the Game by Steve Winwood. Uh, Love Steve Winwood. Always works. La Marada by Philip Michael Thomas. Again, I love seeing Philip Michael Thomas on his own TV show. And then the metal line about 
TV soundtracks at all. That's all that music is today. Then we also have Space Invader by The Pretenders. That Smell by Leonard Skinner and What You Need by In Excess. They were able to get some really big songs on this episode. So kudos to the music team. I just wish that they hadn't relied so much on Randy Newman. I would very much also like L.A. to find a new song. <laughs> or maybe there are just so few good songs about L.A. that that's why they just stick with I Love L.A. by Randy Newman, because everything else is just complaining about the traffic <laughs> and the crime and how hard it is to just run a simple errand in Los Angeles. So maybe that's why. And so as I stop complaining about Randy Newman, I will crown my choice of song of the episode as That Smell by Leonard Skinnerd. For not only being a banger, but also it being incredibly thematically relevant as he enters into the junkie den. I need to look up this word. I will, I swear I will do this and I will post on Instagram when I have the proper word. Now, let's get to some fashion. No surprise, the best dressed woman in this episode is going to go to our fitness enthusiast who unfortunately is uh, not working out in the most airy of workout clothes as she's always in a bathing suit. Second best dressed woman is going to be the lady in the leopard print strapless bathing suit. When the first montage plays, I actually want to say it's the only montage of the episode when the montage of Miami as Miami by my favorite plays in the background. She does look like a million bucks. Now best dressed man. Gotta go with Crockett. Crockett and the baby blue at the end when they're making the deal on the island looks like a million bucks. I also really like the color combo of Rico's shirt when he's, um, his undershirt and his suit when he's fiddling with the radio in the first scene. It's like a nice teal button-up shirt and then the tie that he's wearing is kind of a mix of teal and purple and it just really makes him pop. Now, my wild card for this episode... Jumbo's wife tied with Jackson's zipper heavy flying suit. Ah, and as we wrap up this episode, I just wanted to take this chance to thank each and every one of you for listening, for sending me great feedback, for sending me lovely notes, for subscribing, for liking, for following, for sharing. It all means a lot. And if you are curious, you want to come check out the gallery, you want to see any of my hopefully funny memes, you can find me everywhere at Vice and Easy Podcast. And on Instagram, you can access all the links to listen to new episodes, to check out the gallery, all through my link tree. And then every single episode will have the gallery linked in the show notes. Now, as we wrap up this episode, I am conflicted about what I want my quote of the week to be. Here are our choices. Lalo, que pasa, man? Don't que pasa me. <laughs> <laughs> or turn off your lights, man. What do you think this is? A spy movie? How can I choose? They're both amazing. And before I sign off, I am going to quickly give you a little history of pirate radio. One second. So in short, I'm very, very, very much summarizing this. The Navy would use radio signals. However, when people would have amateur radio broadcasts, it would interfere a lot with Navy signals. And it kind of took the sinking of the Titanic, which, you know, not 100% blamed on just radio communication. There were a lot of other factors at play. But that became President Taft's, Taft's initiative. And in 1926... 
a station in Chicago changed its frequency to one reserved for Canadian stations. So there was already existing legislation in place that President Taft put um, right after Titanic. So I want to say 1916. And then this led to the Radio Act of 1927. However, pirate radio became more popular in the UK and in Europe, naturally because you could station yourself off the coast of the United Kingdom play. And then there was also kind of um, a little bit of a scandal with Radio Luxembourg. And that technically was a crime to listen to it at home. And then in the States, there's less of a history, but there's more of a history with border blasters. So these are stations that are either in Mexico or in Canada that have a strong enough signal that you can go over the border. And then this was a little bit more scandalous back in the day because once there was a very strong border blaster in Mexico, they could broadcast ads that were legally not allowed to air in the United States. But again, they weren't broadcasting from the United States, but they were being able to be heard in U.S. households. But there is a movie with Bill Nighy that goes into this a little bit more with some really cool British DJs. I believe it's called The Boat That Rocked. I want to say it was released under another name because that's not how I remember it. But I remember it was a very charming movie about kind of the history of pirate DJs, overcoming censorship, you know, being able to play what they want and then not being beholden to different restrictions. So I do wish that the DJ in this episode kind of would go along with that kind of like true pirate format. But I understand that this number one was cable television. It was a B plot. And this was, you know, not really what the show was about. This was kind of just a way to juxtapose different kind of pirates, nice pirates and bad pirates. Uh, However, now I don't really think any good pirates exist today since there's not really any need for pirate radio. And with that, I will see you next week as we are going to go over the season finale for season two. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you as always next week. Hey man, Miami Wise is number one new show.